Welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Graham Cornwell. I'm Alyssa Walter. In this conversation, we revisit an oft-discussed aspect of the 20th century Middle East, nationalism, but this time from a slightly different angle. We examine the role of Arab expatriates and exiles in Nazi Germany, and their evolving understandings of fascism, communism, and nationality during the 1930s and 1940s. What were the ideological options for interwar Arab nationalists and politicians? How did communists, exiled from their homeland in the Middle East, get by in Nazi Germany? What role did they serve as intermediaries between the Third Reich and the greater Arab world? How did these experiences in Europe shape then their formulations of their own national identity? And finally, how should we assess their collaboration with fascist regimes? We're joined today by a historian who studied these very questions. Professor Peter Veen is Associate Professor of Modern Middle East History at the University of Maryland College Park. He's the author of Iraqi Arab Nationalism, Authoritarian, Totalitarian, and Pro-Fascist Inclinations, 1932-1941, to published in 2006, and the forthcoming Arab Nationalism, The Politics of History and Culture in the Modern Middle East, coming out with Routledge in 2017. Professor Veen, we are delighted to have you here on the podcast with us. Thank you very much. So to start us off, Professor Veen, what, what initially drew you to this topic? Well, I'm myself of uh, German origin, and um, I did uh, my um, first graduate degree, a master's degree in history, European history, combined with Islamic studies and uh, Semitic languages in Germany. So uh, the topic kind of uh, offered itself to bridge between the two subject areas that I was studying. I had a long interest um, in uh, 20th century German history. I also had a um, long interest in in the uh, same period in the modern Middle East. Uh, so, um, And there were several institutions that I was working at. Uh, one of them was the uh, um, Center for or Institute for Contemporary History in Munich, where I um, once did an internship many, many years ago and found uh, some files that were quite interesting. Um, I worked at the uh, Center for Modern Oriental Studies in Berlin, Centrum Moderne Orient, where um, I helped um, establish a project, a um, working group that uh, dealt with this topic, Arab-Nazi um, relations, or rather um, encounters between Nazi Germany and uh, the Arab East, or the Arab world in general. So, I mean, it came along as a um, as an interesting uh, and, uh, you know, relatively obvious uh, topic concerning the kind of stuff that I was doing at the time. Uh, even though uh, when I started doing it, uh, which was, uh, I would say, it goes back to 1997, 1998, where, when I was still a graduate student, um, we were doing pioneering work at the time. Whereas uh, in the, over the past 10, 15 years or so, all of a sudden the uh, topic has received a lot of attention, actually. Uh, which... Leads me to ask what what do you think the importance of this topic is? The I know in German historiography there's of course a lot of interest in understanding the Nazi period in German history and understanding Nazi Germany's relationships to other parts of the world. Um, and then within the Middle East, of course, the whole role of anti-Semitic ideology is of course very important. But so for you, what is you know what interest do you have in this topic and what role do you see for your own work? And there are two ways of, of approaching this. On the one hand, you're very right that anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish ideology plays um, a relatively important role in public discourse today um, in the Arab world or in the Muslim broader Muslim world in general, unfortunately. Um, and even more so since, you know, over the past years we have experienced a number of violent outbreaks um, in Europe Many of these events have taken place in France, where you know much of that of the discourse is actually coming to the surface. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is, of course, uh, that I have been working on this, or there's a group of people who have been working on this to debunk a myth, to some extent, namely that the current currency of anti-Semitic um, language that appears um, in the Middle East is actually based on a long-term affinity between 
Arabs in particular, Arab nationalism, but also Islamism and um, fascist ideology, Nazi ideology in particular, and anti-Semitic ideology. So what, what we've been trying to do, not just me, but also other people, is to look into the historical foundations of this myth and to either you know, find, um, find out about the, the ways how Arabs actually did cooperate with Nazis, how they did adopt and adapt the respective ideology, but also how they did not. So just to contextualize these trends as broadly as possible. Now, this effort to debunk that myth is really the subject of your book, Iraqi Arab Nationalism. So uh, perhaps you could explain a little bit of what, uh, what you found, what your argument is, and how you found that, and what sources you used to build that argument. The thing is, what I should say first is that it's never a good idea to try to found your research, a book that you want to write, or to define it um, ex negativo, to, to do it in order to write against something. It's much better, more productive, more useful to write, to uh, find something out um, in the first place, you know, not, not necessarily to, to um, um, negate something else. So I would rather like to see my book necessarily not, first of all, as, some, as something that, uh, that tries to write, write, against, write, uh, write on against something, you know. And that's also why I didn't call it Arabs and Nazism or something like that at the time. Because that's not what I found during my research. You know, I, I should say definitely that I entered into that research trying uh, or with the plan to, to, to identify clear um, links of uh, cooperation, collaboration between um, nationalists in Iraq and Nazi Germany. Or I entered the project um, with the goal to find clear lines of transmission of Nazi ideology to Iraq. I didn't find these kinds of things. The, my sources, the sources that I, would, I was using, didn't um, produce these kinds of results. So I'd rather, what I wanted to do at the time and what, what I also think is a lot more productive is, to, is, is, is that I tried to redefine my uh, research goals rather to identify what kinds of, and that's where the t title of my, my book comes from, what, what kinds of trends existed in Iraq that uh, have often been identified as being pro-Nazi, but that within a local context might actually turn out to be something very different or might be contextualized in a, in a very different way. So um, what I did at the time is, is first of all, uh, to um, try to, to reconstruct a, a discourse that took place in uh, newspapers, in um, a number of, of other publications, printed publications, things that were uh, preserved in uh, memoirs. So these are the, the, the major um, sources that I used at the time to try to reconstruct the discourse. So maybe you could talk about some of these nationalists themselves and um, how they actually encountered and, say, digested ideas about fascism, authoritarianism, totalitarianism. So uh, Iraq is not uh, situated in a vacuum at, in, at the time. Iraq, Iraqi nationalists, Iraqi intellectuals are situated in a broad context of intellectual exchange that covers uh, much of the Arab-speaking Arabic speaking world at the time. So there are trends that Iraq at the time shared with Egypt, certainly Syria, Lebanon, Palestine at the time. And... Um, People in all of these countries, to different degrees, at different stages, experienced um, similar problems with imperialism, problems with elite formation, problems with uh, the creation of new classes of um, educated uh, professionals, the so-called um, young Effendia um, that uh, people have um, worked on now, you know, over the past 20 years in different contexts. Um, in Iraq and Syria and so on. And what the 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 uh, concept that I used in order to understand why there is a certain 
degree of radicalization that takes place among certain groups of people, especially people of a specific generation, the people who were in the 20s, 30s, or, or um, still in, in, in high school at the time. So to try to understand why, why there is such a degree of radicalization that takes place among them that makes them join um, radical movements, formulate radical ideas, or even um, uh, approve of uh, violence in certain moments. History. So, what I the the concept that I that I used for that was the the, conf, the concept of um, uh, conflicts, uh, generations and conflict, based on you know such um, eminent scholars going back to the first half of the 20th century, like Karl Mannheim or so. I think it was. Um, I mean, you know, there had been people before me who had used that concept in Middle Eastern history context, but not many. I think it was relatively new at the time uh, when I used that. So, uh, trying to explain. Um, radicalization through an approach where I looked at this specific generation that had been that had grown up in a period of the 1920s, 30s, when state and society uh, in a country like Iraq uh, were still in flux, quite in a similar way to to what happened in Syria at the time or Palestine at the time. Egypt was a little further along, I would say, already at the time. So. Um, uh, State and society were in flux. They offered a lot of possibilities, especially to young people. But then at the same time, they were um, constrained by the conditions of imperialism and uh, elite formation that had taken place in the context of imperialism, which had brought people to power in uh, Iraq that uh, were, on the one hand, um, very committed nationalists, but on the other hand, were, first of all, interested in preserving their own uh, power and their own positions in these societies, which they had just recently gained. So I'm talking here about um, especially military people, the so-called the group of the so-called Sharifian officers um, who had uh, arrived in Iraq in um, 1921 when the state was founded together with um, Prince Faisal, who became the first king of Iraq. So what I described then for the 1930s, for this period that I'm talking about, is that there is a, a rather... Um, paradox situation that you have these politicians, these uh, old officers who in the 1930s are now in, in positions of power, who are, um, you know, m most of the um, government ministers and so on uh, come from this group. Uh, they are nationalists, they promote nationalism in public discourse, in, in school curricula, in clubs that people attend and so on, but at the same time they don't want to um, admit uh, any influence uh, to uh, this younger generation of intellectuals that emerges at the time and that gains access to newspapers and to um, you know all these um, different um, new media that are emerging at the time. Um, so th there is this confrontation that takes place that builds up and in the context of, a, of, of growing insecurity and political turmoil in the second half of, of the 1930s in Iraq, um, a radicalization takes place where... Um, these young people uh, are uh, debating ways to um, reform the Iraqi polity, to uh, open it up for a new generation, and uh, they debate uh, political systems, what would be most beneficial to create a future strong state, a strong society. You know, youth plays a very central role um, in these debates. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them play with the idea of... Um, you know the great leader, the uh, the uh, um, um, strong individual, the streamlining of society, especially the discipline, disciplining the society, um, as they observe it in um, the uh, fascist um, countries of Europe, and uh, you know debate among themselves if they if this would be something that would be feasible for Iraq, it would be beneficial for Iraq. And then you have this uh, this situation in Iraq in 1941 during World War II when um, the, the the opportunity opens up to, or when the question is actually um, being asked whether Iraq should remain a, a loyal um, ally uh, to Great Britain or whether it should rather um, move over to the other side, move over um, to um, support uh, the Axis powers, Nazi Germany, uh, during the war and whether that would be an advantage or whether that would lead, finally lead to complete independence for Iraq. And this is a situation which in um, April and May 1941 leads to an, um, or where in the, in the um, aftermath of a, of a military coup, a, a radical nationalist government 
um, is established, uh, which looks as if this government was steering towards a totalitarian system in Iraq. You know, it never actually comes to fruition because the uh, the, the British uh, won't allow this to happen, so they occupy Iraq in a very short war in the course of May 1941, and this um, government is, is um, you know, totally um, disbanded and no traces, or, you know, it, it seems that for the few, fo- few following years, no traces of these trends are actually left in Iraq, which, you know, is not entirely the case, because there are many trajectories that lead from this this episode to later periods in Iraqi history. But the thing is, that this government is actually quite an interesting moment in many ways in Iraqi history because um, it looks, uh, it is for the first time an attempt to sideline um, old-style politicians in Iraq from the old um, from the old elites and where young people are actually entering this government. And this is where rather strange dynamics actually um, develop in, uh, in this moment in Iraqi history. So you're describing this moment of transition of a younger, nationalized kind of generation, uh-huh. uh, middle-class urban uh, youth uh-huh. that are disgruntled with the old guard, uh, questioning the alliances that their government has been making. Could you talk a little bit more in in the context of these debates that you've described, which models were appealing? Why would an authoritarian uh, model be appealing? And... You know, was Western Europe, was, you know, Mussolini and Hitler, were those the primary models or who else were they looking towards? So uh, the context of these debates is a general dissatisfaction with the parliamentary system because it uh, was considered by many people as corrupt. In Iraq, not only in Iraq, similar things um, take place in, in Egypt, for example. Um, people do not necessarily reject parliamentary democracy in the first place, but they believe that in the condition which they find themselves in, with these elites at the helm who are then supported by Great Britain, and Great Britain, um, you know, which styles itself, which fashions itself as a colonial power, still, um, you know, being a colonial power, it still promotes parliamentary democracy, but the reality that people find in these countries is that parliamentary democracy is being abused to help uh, elites remain in power. So elections are being rigged, and um, the constitution is not worth the paper that it's written on. Um, the, uh, there are emergency laws in these, in these constitutions which make it possible for the executive to basically cancel out the, um, the um, legislative and so on and so forth. So people um, believe that maybe for a certain period of time it would be good for countries, for societies such as Iraq, or you know, the case of Egypt is again very prominent, to um, experiment with authoritarian models. That's what they believe. They also um, see the success that authoritarian states, totalitarian states have had in challenging um, established orders, the established international order. So Germany is looked upon as an example, or Italy is looked upon as an example that have uh, um, challenged uh, British-French dominance in Europe successfully. That's what people, some people find appealing. But it doesn't mean necessarily that uh, people blindly fall into the trap of, you know, hailing Hitler and Mussolini or approving of, of their actions. They very, they're very much aware of what's going on in um, Ethiopia, Abyssinia at the time. They're very much aware of Italy's um, um, politics, uh, the suppression of, of um, all sorts of groups of, of um, Libyan population in, in Libya. So they're very well aware of that. And it's... Uh, the discussion is kind of wavering between these two poles. You know, they say, okay, maybe there is a there is a certain um, benefit to the way how the, the Nazis or the fascists have organized their society. They have um, um, disciplined society. They try to strengthen their youth, and uh, that might be a way for us to go. But then at the same time, they look at what the Italians have done you know, as, as a colonial power, and that's a problem. They're also very suspicious of, of Germany's intentions. Because um, even if, if Germany 
may have challenged Britain and France in Europe, it's still um, a European power. And Iraqis don't consider themselves as, uh, or they, they, would, they argue they would be naive to assume that a European power would have, um, um, you know, just um, good-willing uh, intentions towards an Eastern power. They consider themselves as part of the East. So um, it would be naive to assume that uh, Germany would not start to colonize if they, would, if, they, if they would be in a position to do so. So uh, other examples that people look to are um, authoritarian regimes in um, what they could consider the Eastern world. So Ataturk is an example. Reza Shah is an example. People look to, to Japan. It goes, the, the admiration for Japan goes back to the um, Japanese-Russian um, war earlier in the century where the Japanese were actually able to overcome a superior power. People are very suspicious of Germany once uh, the... Um, the occupation of of, uh, of Czechoslovakia takes place, you know, the and and uh, all sorts of things. So there is a, a very broad discussion, and people pick and choose. They uh, uh, look at what they find appealing. They reject what they don't like. And you know, one should also take into consideration that this is not the only political trend in these uh, countries. There are strong leftist movements. There are um, strong internal debates over uh, the course that uh, a country, a multi-ethnic country, a multi-sectarian country uh, like Iraq, that, that this country should take, should it be um, a uh, uncompromisingly Arab nationalist country? No, it shouldn't, because for many um, uh, members of minority groups, this is not an attractive option. So there are Shi'i Muslims who are um, politically marginalized in Iraq at the time, there are Jews, there are Christians, and many of them actually are, are in favor of um, socialist left-wing trends that are um, strong in Iraq at the time as well. You know, when you look at, the, at, at Iraqi history as a, as a um, sequence of um, you know, these waves of when certain political movements are dominant, when they come in, when they enter into the foreground and then they recede into the background. Definitely the second half of the 1930s is a period where nationalism is in the foreground. But then after 1941, when that movement is is destroyed and also totally discredited by its uh, utter um, failure, leftists are entering into the center of attention. The Communist Party um, becomes very strong. It becomes the strongest uh, political movement in Iraq up until um, the Iraqi Revolution. So um, it, is a, it is a broad spectrum of uh, political opinions that are being debated and discussed. And you can point to individual intellectuals at the time who move, who waver between the different positions. They find something attractive in, 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 in this ideology. They read this author and, and pick out a part of that ideology. And in, a, in you know, uninhibited uh, eclecticism, they, they, they choose something from a different author, which they also find um, appealing. So between Marx, Gustave Le Bon, um, Nietzsche, uh, Mussolini, Hitler, and, and uh, back to, to Engels, you know, you would, they would construct an, a, an, an, a, a universe of what they find appealing to, to their own, for their own ideological goals. of Iraqi nationalist uh, contacts with with Europe, uh, European ideas, European thinkers, as well as states. Um, what about Stalin? What about the Soviet Union? Um, are there uh, Iraqis taking their cues from there? Are they working and studying there? Do you have a, do you have a sense of that influence? So the Soviet Union comes up in. Um well, in the in the Iraqi Communist Party, obviously, even though one should not exaggerate the link between the Iraqi Communist Party and the Soviet Union, the um, Iraqi Communist Party has been described as the only true nationalist party of Iraq, um, because um, radical Arab nationalists of different um, colors were, you know, what what they pursued was 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 a was a pan Arab ideology. Plus, um, you could also accuse many of these of these uh, pan-Arab nationalists as actually promoting very um, specific parochial interests. 
I mean, looking at the Ba'ath Party, how it started after, say, the mid-1950s or so, really to pursue um, a Sunni, um, an, a, uh, an agenda of Sunni dominance, actually. Even though, again, here we should also shouldn't uh, exaggerate the sectarian component of that too much. It's more of a, it's more a specific clique, a specific group of people who share a, a, a similar upbringing, similar um, geographical origins and so on, and who also happen to be Sunni, who promote uh, the interests of a specific clique. The Iraqi Communist Party is presented in the historiography as the party that transcends these um, cracks and fissures that uh, divide Iraqi society. So opening the uh, the party for um, opening the party to minorities, which is especially um, attractive to for Christians, Jews, Shi'is, but also um, um, many Sunni Muslims, based on their on their class origin. Obviously, the Communist Party is also the first party that really starts to build a. Um, mass falling based on um, recruitment among the working class. That's something which had never happened before in Iraq. So the, the nationalist movement that we're talking about in the second half of the, of the 1930s is a very narrow movement. First of all, catering towards um, middle classes, um, established elites, um, high school students, and they're all very small in numbers at the time. It's really only that in the, in the um, aftermath of the 1941 movement that... Um, the Communist Party is the party that reaches out to, into a broader um, class basis underneath. But again, you know, the uh, the links, and I think there's there's probably a lot more research that needs to be done on the Communist Party in that regard. But the links um, with the Soviet Union are quite tenuous. So the decisions that are being made by the Communist Party are, are made on a on a basis of um, domestic Iraqi interests. The program that the um, Communist Party um, or the platform that it um, that it uh, uses to appeal to people is uh, very moderate, um, if not even um, social democratic, rather than rather than a fully fledged uh, um, Puritan. Um, class conflict uh, um, doctrine that it that it pursues. You know. um, the mythical leader of the Iraqi Communist Party, who founded the or who reorganized and and strengthened the Communist Party in the second half of the 30s and the 40s, uh, Comrade Fahd, who is um, executed by the Iraqi regime in 1949, I believe, he uh, went through a um, training process that was very typical for his generation of communist communist leaders in um, non-European countries. So he attended the uh, Academ- academy for uh, for the toilers of the East in uh, Moscow in the second half of the 1930s, where he received training in Marxist-Leninist uh, ideology, and where he received first of all training in how to organize um, a an underground movement a cell-structured um, party and so on. But beyond that, there's not that much of a, of a command line that you can identify in the Iraqi Communist Party. And, you know, in the, the intellectuals that I've looked at, and I haven't looked at the, at, at the leftist trend uh, that much. I look, first of all, focused on the, on the nationalist uh, right-wing trend. But they don't... Uh, you hardly find... Um, clearly identifiable lines of transmission or clearly identifiable models there. You know, it's like cafeteria nationalists, you know, so they, they, they take it from, from wherever they can find it. And, um, you know, they're eclectics, but they're doing it in a, in a very clever way, you know? I mean, it's not in any way, um, I, I don't want this to sound derogatory or anything like that, or diminishing. You know, they have no reason to um, uh, adhere to a certain line. They have, they have everything to, to choose from, so that's what they do. Well, let me ask you more then about the content of pan-Arab nationalism and, and go back to away from the left. Um, and so you've been describing the process by which these intellectuals were forming an amalgamation of different ideas that, that they're being inspired from. Um, but perhaps you could now go further and talk more about how within this somewhat eclectic ideology – how were Arabs being thought of? What were the terms of identity 
um, at stake here, uh, knowing that, of course, the the fascist ideologies in Europe adhere to a particular form of racial logic that is distinct from how the Arab intellectuals were thinking about it. So perhaps you could elaborate a bit on on identity, and then if I could add a second part, um, the identities of the intellectuals themselves as mostly urban, mostly upper-middle-class men, how does that play into it as well? The construction of identity among these nationalists is uh, functioning along uh, historicist lines, I would say. So much of the identity for... They... uh, much of the identity formation is a narrative based on a particular vision of Arab history. And that Arab history, um, uh, you know, it's a classic model of, of, of um, Arab nationalist historicism that excludes the uh, um, Ottoman period as a period uh, of decline and tales uh, a golden age of, of Arab um, you know, of, 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 uh, of a flourishing of Arab culture in, in the Arab Middle Ages. Um, and then there are certain um, more militant Arab nationalists who um, drive that even further back, who uh, reconstruct an, an, an ideal community of um, Arab warriors of the early generations um, of Islam that should um, serve as a um, model to the Arab youth of the time, which should not be mistaken for anything that that resembles what we know as Salafism. You know, it's not Salafism. You know, they don't use the term. They don't refer back to this to the Salaf. They don't refer back to the forefathers. They refer, um, you know, they refer back to them with another um, Arabic term, with, which is um, Ajdad. So um, the terminology is different. It's a secular terminology, and it's a secularizing approach towards the history of early Islam as an Arab national history, you know, praising a generation of, of um, enduring warriors uh, prior to the, to the uh, cultural decline, which they consider mostly as induced by foreign races. So there is a certain element of eth- ethnic pride in here. There is even um, in its extremes a certain element of racism, I would say. Racism that rejects other races, such as um, um, the non-Arabs who had infiltrated uh, the Arab race, as they say, um, in the, uh, in the you know, after two, two, two centuries of, of Islamic history or so. There is also um, language of race uh, that, and language of race that rejects foreign infiltration, foreign elements that is reminiscent um, in some ways of anti-Semitic discourses, even though I have to say that clear, outright anti-Semitism is rare in the language of the 1930s. That's the, that kind of language you, you start to find in Arab nationalist discourse mostly after 1945 and then um, very strongly um, after 1948. Before that time, it's there, but it's not prominent. So when people talk about... Um, Foreigners who have a bad influence on, on Arabs. It's not necessarily about Jews. There's rejection of what, especially in Iraq, has been a call has been uh, identified or what, what nationalists identified as Persian influence. And again, then the the Ottoman story here. So, the, but there is definitely an ethnic element. So, if you want to um, um, look for trajectories here, racial language. Um, racism, anti-Semitism, there's definitely room for it, even though it needs, especially in the case of anti-Semitism, another trigger, which is, first of all, the the, um, creation of the State of Israel, for it to really come to the fore, but then very forcefully after 1948. How did the identity of these nationalists themselves as mostly urban, as middle, upper middle class, and a new middle class, as educated, as more so Sunni, although not exclusively so. Um, how did that shape the way that they conceived of this pan-Arab project? The thing is, among the leading voices at the time, you find representatives of all 
backgrounds. And that's what, what turns them into a class. They share a certain origin rather, a certain yeah, class origin rather than a, uh, th than a uh, sectarian background. So there's a very leading Christian voice. There is a very important nationalist politician at the time was actually of Shi'i background. Um, there are, of course, Sunnis, yes. Um, but what they share is that uh, many of them are of relatively humble origins and, they, and the um, state system of education enables them um, to rise socially, especially into modern professions, such as teachers, such as journalists, such as lawyers, such as medical doctors. So, uh, and it's this experience which they um, foreground in the in the late 1930s to, to be to to be part of the community. So it's this experience which enables them to be part of a community. And it, again, you know, it's 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 not the the. Um, uh, the, the intellectuals that I'm talking about are not in power at the time. So they're not uh, exposed to the challenges of what ruling and governing actually means when the, the challenge is to uh, compete over the resources of the state, to distribute the resources of the state. They're fighting against a common enemy, which is the old elites, which is the, the imperialist system. But they're not there yet. They're not in a position yet where they can decide after that happens, you know, they will be at each other's throats. But, but uh, at that time, that's not the case yet. So Christians, Sunnis, uh, Shi'is, they can, all of them, join a pan-Arab nationalist mainstream. Others will make different decisions. You know, others will be, will be leftists. Others will become, will, will join a leftist trend in Iraqi society. But they can also be pan-Arabs uh, at the time. For Iraqi Jews, it's slightly different because um, they find themselves um, really stuck between a rock and a hard place at the time. In the 1930s, the Palestine topic becomes a prominent topic, the prominent topic of Arab nationalist discourse. So it's a vehicle for all sorts of, of, of um, accusations. The Zionist movement is considered the just the most obvious representative of British imperialism in the Middle East. And people start to, especially in the context of the um, Palestine revolt from 1936 to 1939, which has you know, huge reverberations throughout the Arab world. Um, so the, the conflict starts to become racialized a little bit. So there are voices, the most, more extreme voices in Iraq and elsewhere that start to identify Zionists with Jews instead that believe that Jews, even in their own societies, represent a subversive element. It's not common. It's not um, dominant at the time, but there are voices. So Jews start to feel threatened, definitely, at the time. They also experience um, violence, for the most part, low levels of violence, where they're being attacked in public. You know, sometimes there's a, there's a hot hat, you know, some young nationalist hot hat that attacks them. But then in... Iraq specifically, they also experience a period of extreme violence, which which takes place in the context of 1941, in the context of the um, the so-called Rashid Ali movement that I've um, alluded to earlier, uh, where uh, after the British uh, recapture Baghdad and occupy Iraq, there is a period of a few days, two days of of uh, um, anarchy and power vacuum in uh, Baghdad and. Um, Various groups in Iraqi society exploit that that power vacuum to attack um, the Jewish quarters of, of Baghdad. It affects mostly the poorer Jewish quarters. Um, many of the people who participate in this violence are looters. So um, com even coming in from from uh, the from Baghdad's hinterland, who take advantage of the time to um, basically steal and and plunder and, and also kill, definitely also kill. But there are also groups among these, um, uh, among the mob who are um, attacking Jews intentionally, who are mostly um, younger people who had been um, uh, ideologically influenced in the, in the late 1930s, uh, were also under the influence of Nazi propaganda at the time, and um, belonged to youth groups, paramilitary youth groups. So I had had some paramilitary training and so on, and they in this in the situation of um, 1941 pick out the Jews, are ideologically driven, and and start to attack them. And uh, up to 200 people die 
in, in these events, which then becomes a very important event in the history of the Iraqi Jewish community. They give it a name. It's the so-called Farhud in Iraqi Arabic, a, a term that refers to an outbreak of chaos and, and violence. And it's being remembered by Iraqi Jews um, in the immediate aftermath and until today by um, descendants of Iraqi Jews who nowadays live in Israel or in other uh, countries. And it's, um, it's an unsettling moment for the Iraqi Jews. So Arab nationalism is not what they can uncompromisingly support. Many of them actually take recourse to becoming communists. So after 1941, there is a, an overrepresentation of Jews in the Iraqi Communist Party. But, you know, they continue to be loyal Iraqis. They continue to, to harbor nationalist feelings. They are patriots, definitely. You've written as well about Arabs, not just Iraqis, who have gone to live and work and study in Germany, um, uh, in Nazi Germany. How did their experience differ? What kind of sense did they make of the ideology of Nazi Germany? How do they sort of interpret these ideas and, and possibly disseminate them? So there are several groups that we're looking at here. There are collaborators, clear collaborators, and there are those who end up in Germany accidentally during the period. Some of those who end up in Germany accidentally join the efforts of the regime, become collaborators. Some don't join the efforts of the regime. The um, presence of Arabs in Germany uh, has a longer history than the Nazi period, obviously. There is a history of um, German-Ottoman relations where Arab officers, for instance, of the Ottoman army spend time in Germany for military training. It goes back to the, um, to the uh, Ottoman-German military partnership before and during World War I. Um, there also, there's a, there's a huge wave of students that arrives in Germany immediately after World War I. It's actually quite interesting because especially um, Egyptian students choose Germany after World War I. They build up a, a sizable community of students in Germany because Germany is cheap after World War I because the, uh, the currency, the German currency is so weak and the, and the um, Egyptian pound is so strong. So it's actually very cheap for, for Egyptians to study in Germany. So they go there, they study there, they study medicine, they study all sorts of things. Many go back, but also some of them stay. Some of them get married. Some of them, um, you know, become part of an, of a, of an Arab expat or a Muslim. One should, should rather say a Muslim expat community in Germany. You know, people have done research about specifically the, the um, Muslim community of Berlin in the 1920s and 30s. So um, they established themselves in Germany, and uh, then uh, the Nazi takeover of power happens, but these Arabs are married, they have jobs, um, so they don't leave. And they, they end up in a situation where um, you know, they can either live their life as they used to, um, or for some of them the situation is a little more precarious, because they are students, for instance, they have a student status, in, in Germany at the time, Egyptians, for instance, and uh, Egypt is, uh, is, is enemy, you know, in, in World War II, Egypt is enemy territory. So because it is, because it is British, uh, it's in the British camp, you know, there's actually an incident where um, a few dozen Egyptians are being interned uh, at the outbreak of World War I because they're considered enemy um, residents. And certainly, you know, Germany is not a good place for a dark-skinned person to be. In the in, in the during the Nazi period, you know they are, um, you know, mistake. They're being mistaken for Jews, you know, and they are being beaten up. But you know, it's not just because they're mistaken for Jews; they're just foreigners, you know. Um, so they experience uh, discrimination, and some of them try to uh, make up for this by, um, um, you know, joining organizations that some parts of the of, of the Nazi regime. So there are, there are certain um, Groups in the Nazi regime who are very pro-Arab, who have an interest in uh, promoting German-Arab exchange. There are diplomats among them who have old links to the to the Arab world, or there are there are people who just have a certain Orientalist leaning uh, towards uh, the Arab world. So they join together in organizations. There's an there's an Islamic Institute in Germany 
um, at the time, which becomes active in the in the late 1930s and so on. So they exchange, you know, they are in 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 contact. They try to appeal to the authorities, and some of them, you know, they are students that are being sent from Arab countries to study in Germany. They study political sciences. They study pedagogy and these and these kinds of subjects, which are all in a way um, politically sensitive in Germany at the time. So they are in a, in a constant exchange with the German side and try to find their place in this, in this exchange. Some of them try to appeal to, to, the, to the German side by publishing articles in German newspapers where they try to describe their own situation, where they argue for the Arab nationalist cause, where they try to propagate... Um, um, anti-Zionism and these kinds of things, and they adopt Nazi language in these newspapers because that's the language of the day, and you know they adopt it quite uncritically. So that's the situation that people find themselves in. They try to, you know, they are businessmen, you know, and they try to protect their own business, so uh, they uh, try to curry favor with with the authorities. So it's a it's it's dynamics that um, um, you probably find in 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 every um, exile situation where you have to deal with the, the political situation that you find yourself in. With the outbreak of World War II, uh, the situation becomes uh, somewhat different. A, you don't want to belong to, to the wrong group. You don't want to belong to, to a group that is, that is defined as, as enemy um, uh, residents. So many of them are actually being expelled. Many of the, of the Arabs are being expelled from Germany. Uh, there is, uh, and there are some people who, who say who, who see this as an opportunity. So Germany has needs, for instance, to um, organize its uh, propaganda warfare. So from um, around uh, 1940, 41, more more pronouncedly, Germany broadcasts um, an Arabic propaganda program into the Arab world, and they need Arabic speakers for that. They want figureheads to um, promote the, the Nazi cause to the Arabs. And there are people there among, you know, some of these people had lived in Germany for 10, 15 years, had been students um, and uh, had taken up professions, but now they decide to, to enter this line of work, you know, become propagandists um, and uh, um, use the, the most vile uh, language to spread anti-Semitic pro- propaganda to the Middle East. So these are, and, and the people that I'm talking about here are, are, you know, kind of ordinary guys who who are students or businessmen in Germany. There are, of course, the other people who also end up in Germany at the time, like uh, Amin al-Husseini, uh, the, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. He's an entirely different story. You know, he's a politician. He has a track record of extreme violent um, uh, nationalism, anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism in, in his language that he, adopted, he had ad- adopted already in the context especially of the, of the um, Palestine revolt. He arrives in, in Germany and he wants you know, military aid, he wants uh, Germany to become the new master of the Middle East. He believes that this is what, where his, his career might lead him. And so he uh, is um, all too willing to, uh, to be um, absorbed to have himself absorbed by the German propaganda apparatus. So he writes speeches that are belong to the most um, poisonous that, that have been written in the Arabic language, and he, he uh, broadcasts it to the Middle East. But again, you know, there are different levels here. There are different motivations that people have. The thing is, um, they're exposed to Nazi ideology in a much more immediate sense, than anybody in a Middle Eastern country would have been at the time. Most of the Middle Eastern countries don't experience German occupation. There's an exception in Tunisia for a while, and there's, of course, time that German troops, uh, um, when when German troops occupy um, parts of Egypt, um, Libya, and so on. But, you know, there's not that immediate encounter uh, with German authority. So um, that clear... um, Clear-cut adoption of, of anti-Semitic Nazi ideology does not take place in the Arab countries, but it takes place in uh, Nazi Germany. And it takes place in the context of collaboration with the authorities. And again, you know, 
it's a one has to put oneself in i think at least to some extent into the position of the that the people find themselves in they need to um protect their their uh, situation uh, their status in germany i think that at least for for those who who had spent time in germany um for several years before the war or had who had even arrived in germany prior to uh, to the nazi taker of power there's no excuse for people like the mufti for instance but uh, the others i think it's for the others i think it's important to contextualize the conditions of their presence in germany at the time i call that in an in an article that i wrote the um, the uh, culpability of exile so to what extent can you uh, hold someone culpable for the position that uh, that he or she takes in a situation where your your standing in the country is quite precarious and where you have to make choices which are to some extent choices of life and death because you know people the, many of these people especially if they had been of Iraqi origin if they had returned to Iraq after 1941 they wouldn't have had an easy time arab residents in germany also had an alternative they could also be uh, resisting and there are examples of people who resist not many that we know but there's just recently there's a there's a an egyptian or or a or a doctor a medical doctor of egyptian origin who has been who has become the first um, arab to be introduced to into the uh, um, the memorial of the um, righteous among the nations in yad vashem because he uh, protected uh, jews who were his who had been his patients and who were no longer allowed to um visit uh, german medical doctors so they so there was actually you know a, a market for people like like this this man who who also wasn't allowed to practice to um to germans anymore at the time so jews were among his uh, there were many jews among among his patients and you know during the war he actually protected some of them he took them in and he and he hit them from um nazi persecution so it's a there was definitely a, an option for Arabs or people of Arab origin in Germany also to to go down down that road. So thank you very much for discussing your research with us today. The topics that you've been studying in your work that of the appeal of authoritarian governance models at a certain time in the Middle East in the 1930s um, or fascist or totalitarian. There's a lot of terms um, that you discuss. Um, and that of anti-Jewish ideology and its role in Middle Eastern history. These are two topics which, of course, have enduring interest that you know scholars have studied and that students um, are interested in and which have quite a bit of relevance today and um, especially the topic of authoritarian uh, models of governance post the 2011 Arab uprisings. You know, this is a perennial concern. Um, so I'm curious now, in looking back in hindsight, looking back at the period of the 1930s, what conclusions might you be comfortable making about the impact of that period, the impact of these fascist models, the impact of some encounters between Nazi Germany and the Middle East, and how that might have rippled throughout time? So one obvious um, uh, consequence of that encounter is that it is a period that in debates among Arabs, but also within the Middle East conflict, of course, comes up all the time. Because it comes in handy as a uh, tool of, of uh, mutual um, attacks and accusations between Arabs and Israelis today. Um, Israelis accuse Arabs of, of having been in cahoots with the Nazis um, and uh, Arabs too um, accuse uh, um, Israelis uh, of uh, behaving like Nazis, you know, and uh, being not not any better than, than, uh, than, than the Nazis. While at the same time they also deny the Holocaust and uh, so it, it plays a central role in the, uh, in the language the rhetoric of the Middle East conflict appeared for a number of reasons. For reasons that we've talked about today, I mean, or with reference to the topics that we've talked about today, but also with reference to the Holocaust and with reference to uh, Nazi Germany, Nazi period as uh, paradigmatic references 
with regard to violence, with regard to suppression, with regard to 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 you know state organized um, um, oppression of peoples and so on. So there are, there are many layers. But as a historian of of the 1930s, I would say, um, in a, on a more abstract level, um, that the 1930s has appeared where much of the where many of the ideologies that that shape Arab political discourse, Arab ideas of the post-World War II period are actually being formulated and gain shape. It is to some extent still the formative period of, of Arab nationalism because much of the political structures of the 1930s are a uh, continuation of the of the Ottoman period. So there's there's a lot of Ottoman holdover from late Ottoman Young Turk times to basically up till 1948, that one could say. But um, forming formulating a radical Arab nationalist discourse, identifying themes uh, such as uh, topoi in the historicist construction of an Arab identity. Ethnic discourses, you know, the the, the first debates about uh, what it means to be Shi'i and Sun or or Sunni in the context of an Arab nation, the position of Jews in the ethnic ethno political setup of of the Middle East, secularism versus religion, the position of religion, the position of Islam, the politi- the politicization of Islam, many of these things gain shape and are being formulated in terms of also textual sources or the creation of images, the creation of, of topoi, or um, the uh, the writing of stories that are then later being referred to. Much of that takes place in the 1930s. I think it's a crucial period in the cultural history of the modern Arab nation-state and modern Arab societies. A very creative period in that regard. Um, but creative in the sense also that many of the dest- destructive um, trajectories are being... Um, initiated that then later on people come back to and, and refer to. And then, you, of course, you know, it's also a period where much of the social um, disruptions of that, that terminate the political course of the second half of the 20th century um, come to the fore. So the formation of the middle classes, the um, um, importance of military officers, uh, the importance that, that military officers gain in the public sphere where um, you know Iraq is, is, is a, Iraqi officers are pioneers, but which also takes place in, in in other Middle Eastern countries at the same time. All of this, you know, um, gels in the in the 1930s to some extent to come into play forcefully um, after the Second World War. Okay, so we talked about sort of the ideological content or or part of it of of Iraqi nationalism within the broader frame of of Arab nationalism. Um, how does ideology connect to other kind of cultural elements? Well, first of all, I see um, ideology as as a part, as one element of the cultural history of Arab nationalism. And that's the topic that I have been um, working on over the past uh, almost 10 years. So my, the, the, my next book that will hopefully come out next year uh, introduces a number of case studies for the manifestation um, or um, that ca- that address the manif- the the um, cultural manif- manifestations of Arab nationalism, and ideology as a history of ideas, as an intellectual history, is an important part of it. But there are other elements as well. Um, for instance, I look at um, what has be- what in in, in uh, history is called um, realms of memory, lieu de mémoire, um, is as. Uh, an important element in Arab nationalism with regard to the formation of identity. So ref- uh, stories that people refer to um, and which they use to construct a positive image of their identity. And the example that I choose for this is um, Muslim Spain, Al-Andalus, and how um, um, Arabs in the late 19th and 20th century have uh, constructed an image of Al-Andalus through poetry, through theater, novels, and so on and so forth. Um, another example for such a manifestation is, uh, for instance, um, uh, museums, museology, something that I look at in this book. So how is, and you know, the specific example that I chose, there is a, is a museum in Egypt 
you know, not one of the of the big national museums that we know, but a, but a museum of Egyptian civilization that was founded in um, Egypt in 1949 to look at how um, Egypt, as a part of the Arab nation, but but as a as a country with its own very strong national identity, actually constructs. Um, such a thing as Egyptian civilization in a museum to sell it to 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 its people, you know. Um, another example is, uh, for instance, uh, festivals, public festivals, and I look at funerals um, in that context. To um, you know, that takes mostly place in Syria to see how how uh, various actors in a society, in a specific locality, use public festivals in order to claim a specific version of Arab nationalism for themselves. And, you know, there are other um, examples um, that I uh, use in this book. A very interesting uh, direction for the research and, and sort of pushing the boundaries of how uh, historians have, have situated nationalism in the region. Well, Professor Veen, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. And um, for more information, please go to our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com for a list of references and uh, more information about this topic. Thanks again.